Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out with friends. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. I'm Corey, you probably know me as 12-Tone, and today we're joined by, without a doubt, my most productive friend. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Thomas Frank, probably better known as Thomas Frank, (laughs) Uh, internet man who does productive things and sometimes makes music. That's a real catchy slogan. Is that your your channel rebrand? <laughs> I am Thomas Frank, otherwise best known as Thomas Frank. <laughs> I can go with that. Honestly, that would be a pretty fun intro. Yeah, good branding. Uh, but yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the stuff that you do before we get into music stuff? Sure. Yeah. Well, since this is a music podcast, I guess I should lead by saying I, I have made music in the past and I make a lot nice. of music that I record on my phone and never share with anyone else, probably on a daily basis, <laughs> uh, have no formal training. So take that for what you will. Uh, what I do normally when I'm not noodling around on my guitar is uh, these days I make videos teaching people how to use a software product called Notion, which is productivity software that is like a box of Legos and your computer. So you can kind of use it to build whatever you want. I use it to run my entire YouTube channel to do task management, note taking. Uh, It's got a pretty big audience and I'm able to run a full-time channel basically just teaching people how to use that. Historically, I ran a bigger channel that was about productivity, self-development, all that kind of guru stuff, but I don't have any courses to sell. I guess that's not true. I have one on Skillshare. And I have, a, I have a Nebula <laughs> class as well, but that's for business owners. Those aren't as expensive as the productivity guru courses tend to get. But Yeah, my, my guru courses are, uh, let's see here, on Skillshare, it's free because they have a trial. And on Nebula, it's, what is it, like 30 bucks a year? Like, it's like, it's yeah, or like so, five bucks a month. There's my super scummy guru courses right there. Which, speaking of Nebula, next episode of Ghost Notes live now. Oh, wait, live? Oh, early on Nebula. That's right. No. <laughs> We, we could not be trusted to record a podcast episode live. Yeah, that's that's a dangerous, <laughs> that's a dangerous, dangerous gambit. It could be a beautiful train wreck. I, I appreciate your faith in us, Thomas. Someday, <laughs> someday, my friends, we will do a hey. live podcast something. I mean, later this year, I'm considering doing a charity live stream. So maybe as as part of the features, we'll have a live episode of Ghost Notes in like hour 18 of a 24 hour live stream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if we if we get enough charity donations, you get to see um, Corey and Noah just like sleep deprived. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) barely functional, (laughs) but doing a podcast. It's not not my live stream. (laughs) And I guess I should also mention, uh, like Corey and Noah, I am a Nebula creator. Hey, Yeah, we yeah. we figured that when you said that you could watch their stuff on Nebula. That was the first hint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Classes and then, uh, you know, the occasional video when I actually publish. Yeah. With that, uh, first of all, folks, like, check out Thomas's stuff. It's pretty good. I'd go so far as to say it's very good. Let me rephrase yeah. that. It's very good. Let's let's say I'd go so far as to say it's pretty decent. Let, let's be a little less understated. It's a solid seven out of ten. <laughs> there we go. I know just from having been on podcasts that whenever people say my work is very good, I'm like, oh no, hold on. So didn't didn't want to make things awkward, but then you know. Well, there was this study a long time ago about how like people don't like a perfect uh like a person who is perceived to be perfect like the moment they find yeah. a small flaw they like them better so you can introduce my work as it's nearly perfect but there's this yeah. one thing i hate about it well, that's that's why my work is mostly flaws yeah that's why i always <laughs> try to add a faint hum in the background of all my audio that'll make people <laughs> like it more right <laughs> there you go yeah my videos yeah. are perfect there's no le- there's no room for improvement so the only way to grow yeah. on youtube is to add a little bit of like something going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, speaking of speaking of making things worse, do we want to pivot to songwriting advice? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what like specifically, what were you thinking of talking about? Well, I don't know if this can fill out an entire episode, but you study music. I think you like actually have like a, a choir background, right? I, I have a vocal performance background, uh, but that is in more in uh, rock and metal. I did do like yeah, one quarter of a jazz choir. But oh, wait, your performance background is in rock and metal. That's even better. Yes, yes. I mean, you've you've seen my hair. You you know what I listen to. I have to. seen your hair. It's it's very um, <laughs> headbang-worthy hair. You could probably do the swirl thing pretty good. So I grew up listening to that kind of music, power metal, symphonic yeah. metal, progressive metalcore, all that kind of good stuff, Coheed and Cambria, you know, yeah. musicians with good hair. 
And I got my first guitar when I was yeah. probably 13. I mean, I'm infinitely envious of Claudio Sanchez's hair. I mean, his hair is just the best hair. Like, it's, it's so good. It's just so good. <laughs> so I got my first guitar at 13 years old. It was, you know, noodling around. Never really took any lessons. Never went to school for music at all. And yeah. I'm also, I don't know if it's like a minor form of ADD or just me like having too much of an ego, but I have never been able to get myself to sit down and learn a song written by another person. And I yeah. know that if I did this, I would answer my question, but I've never <laughs> done it. It's all improv all the time. So what I don't yeah. really know how to do as a songwriter is if I come up with like an interesting chord progression, you know, and by interesting, I mean just your standard four chord or even a two chord. I don't really know how to elegantly transition to a different section of the song. So say I come up with like four chords and I play them, uh, you know, in four measures, that's my verses. I don't know how to like then pick a complementary but different chord structure for the yeah. chorus or the bridge. And I want, I was going to ask y'all if there's like some sort of music theory framework for doing that. Or is it just like a feeling thing? Yeah. I want to just start out with a disclaimer as sort of the music theorist in the call and the person with, I think, the most specifically applicable degree. I want to be clear that, like, there is no right answer to that. Mm -hmm. Like, the answer fundamentally is the thing that feels right. But there are, you know, there are tricks. There are things you can try. I'm happy to throw mm -hmm. a lot of those out. I want to be really careful, less for you and more for anyone listening just that what I'm not saying is that the list of things I give are the right way to do a section transition, right? There's things to try if you don't have an idea. There is no right way to write a song. Yeah. Can I frame the question better then? Yeah. So I'm not asking for like the right way to transition from verse to chorus or whatever, but what I'm asking for is like, I'm the musician who comes up with a lick and then I'm stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what I'm looking for is like, just one avenue that I can get myself unstuck. Yeah. I think a lot of people are in that, uh, that that area as well. There's a lot more than one avenue available. Mm -hmm. Personally, like, uh, to start this off, like one of my favorites is just don't. Like <laughs> okay. a lot of songs will just take the loop that they have in the verse, that four chord loop or whatever, mm -hmm. and then keep playing it in the pre-chorus and keep playing it in the chorus and keep going. And I think that that works really well in a lot of songs. And so I think that there's a tendency to like, overcorrect towards doing new things that isn't always necessarily sounds better as subjective but like mm -hmm. i think that a lot of times the question is like what do i do next instead of how do i keep doing this in a way that yeah. works and i think that often that's just not a thing that people are considering and I don't know if that's your experience at all. We call that one the locomotive <laughs> breath approach. <laughs> locomotive the, exactly. branch? Locomotive Breath. It's it's a Jethro Tull song oh, that, that just has a great groove and just rides that groove. Yeah. Well, it also has two completely unrelated intros, but I also want to shout out Noah mentioning Jethro Tull without my prompting for once. <laughs> I thought you'd be proud of me. <laughs> I'm going to add that to my uh, liked song so I can check it out later. Yeah, I mean, l listen to Aqualung if you want to hear ways to do good riffs in interesting ways. Okay. But just the whole, the whole album. A lot of it depends on what kind of style of music you want to make, because there's, there's a famous quote about country music that it's three chords in the truth. There's this great quote by mm -hmm. Lou Reed that goes, one chord is fine, two chords are pushing it, three chords and you're into jazz. So there's a lot of people whose songwriting approaches are very minimal and are very sparse in in sort of just repeating these things, especially. Yeah, the, the big ones that that you see that in our country and punk, I would say, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, though, you also do see it in a fair amount of kind of just like mainstream rock. Uh, it's pretty common yeah. to do that as well. And one of the things that a lot of people will do to differentiate it, especially in a band setting, is you'll have the same chords, but you'll change the arrangement around those chords. Yeah. Whether that means a different beat, whether that means, you know, shifting from clean to distortion for the chorus, things like that. You mm -hmm. can do a lot of things, like Corey was saying, within that framework, you can do a lot of things yeah. A chord progression is such a small part 
of what makes a song. There's a thousand different things in the arrangement that you can do to change and diversify that. And I mean, one of the greatest classical pieces yeah. ever written even is Ravel's Bolero, which is just taking the same melody and repeating it while growing and swelling the arrangement throughout. Interesting. And that kind of connects to something in my head because like, I listen to mostly like post-hardcore pop punk kind of stuff. And yeah. I feel like I need to sit down and do an analysis to see if this is correct. But it feels like a lot of bands hit upon like a distorted, pretty full chord progression and that's their chorus. And then like the verses, yeah. maybe it's just like a Paul muted arpeggio. And I don't know if it's the same chord progression, but I bet you half the time it is. Yeah. This isn't like post-hardcore. Smells Like Teen Spirit is exactly that. Oh, okay. Yep. Where the verse is the bass outlining the chord progression uh, while Kurt Cobain just holds a power chord on top of it. And then the chorus is the same chords, but now Kurt Cobain is strumming really angrily. Gotcha. Also, like, nearly every ACDC song is the same yeah. chord progression throughout with some arrangement changes in the chorus. Yeah, that sort of, like was a point that I had been planning to mention that I'm very angry that Noah stole from me. <laughs> a lot of what makes section transitions work, even if there is a harmonic change, is non-harmonic elements, especially like dynamics. You don't necessarily want to just immediately get loud at the chorus. You like often want to have like a little bit of ramp up in the last like bar or so. And you see this a lot of times where like the singer will jump up and start singing a much higher, more powerful line before the rest of the band follows or there's like the guitar starts strumming harder. A great example for that exact thing is More Than a Feeling by Boston. Yeah. And this you see this a lot in like pop songwriting these days, uh, which is sort of borrowed a lot from EDM at this point. But like the idea of a riser. Yeah. Where you'll have a pre-chorus and then like they'll either be like a, like a filter sweep or like a rising pitch. Or a really common thing is if you take the recording of like a a hi-hat or a cymbal crash, and you just play it backwards. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a really common thing. I used that in my last instrumental track. Yeah, and it sounds really good. That is like one really specific thing. On the question of chords, like if you do want to change chords, because that, that certainly happens a lot too. One thing that I think I see a lot in the sorts of music I listen to is there's sort of two main approaches that I see. Uh, one is sort of shifting to the relative major or minor. Is that something you're familiar with? I don't know your theory background. So basically, like if I'm, I'm, you know, going to pull from my weird guitar brain, but if I'm playing in D minor, the relative major will be F major, right? Just like the third of the yes. minor. Okay, then yes. Yes, the third of the minor or the sixth of the major. Uh, right. So they're same, same notes, but with a different root. Uh -huh. And that sort of shifts. So D minor and F major are, they're all the same notes. Yep. F, G, A, B flat, C, D, E, F, or those same notes, but, but like D minor centers around D, F major centers around F. Mm -hmm. Being major instead of minor gives it a different sort of emotional quality. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's obviously it's not as simple as like minor is sad, major is happy, but like that's the shorthand a, yeah. as a basic version of it. Yeah, that'll work. Right. It's a common way to like have like a, a darker verse and then sort of brighten things up in the chorus by moving to the relative major. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you can even do it the other way and have like things get darker in the chorus where you go to the relative minor. And that way they're complementary, but they're structurally different in a way that is satisfying without being like completely disparate. Because if you go from like D minor to G major, that's just sort of weird. Right. There's a little bit of a connection between those. But um, like this, it's much less strong, whereas like moving to the relative you often don't actively notice it as a listener. It's mm -hmm. such a smooth transition, but it gives you sort of a different, again, a different emotional context and a different sort of grounding to sort of base your riff on, both in terms of like a new note and also a new scale and a new set of note relationships to play around with. Right. That, you know, especially in like riff-based stuff. I think a great example just for, if you want kind of how this can sound, yeah. Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne is a great example yes. oh, okay. of that. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask, like, what if you know of an example of a song? Yeah, that's A major to F sharp minor, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. It intros F yeah. sharp minor, yeah. and then it when Ozzy comes in. Yeah, it, the verse yeah. is A. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, Psycho Killer by the Talking yeah. Heads is another one that does that. 
Yeah. Okay. This is a very important part of the ghost notes dynamic is that no one knows examples. <laughs> I just know ideas. Another sort of like pitch perfect example. That's a really good example of how it does it, how it uses yeah. this to underline the sort of emotional vibes of the song. Mr. Jones by the Counting Crows. Yeah. Okay. That's a great example of how you can create, you know, that sort of that sort of emotional tension shift where the verses of Mr. Jones are in minor and kind of have have this, you know, the sort of like tension and melancholy. And then the chorus is very exuberant by switching to the relative major. I have a whole lot of listening to do now. <laughs> when I was going to uh, record my first like actual rock track, the first thing I did was I watched <laughs> Corey's video on how to write lyrics because I didn't know how to do that. And then <laughs> I went to a coffee shop and I just put on, like, I was like, what's the simplest pop song I can think of? Dark Horse by Katy Perry. Okay. And I'm just like sitting there listening over and over and again, like counting every beat. Like, oh, yeah, it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Oh, and there's this yeah. many measures. And like, it, it's just kind of interesting because before I'm like, music is just this gigantic impenetrable thing and you yeah. see what comes out the other end of the process but as a non-musician you can't understand it and then like taking yeah. this time to really understand and pick apart the structure it's like i kind of understand like all the elements that go in how they fit together finally riffing off that like especially for chord progressions one of the best ways to come up with a good chord progression is just to steal someone else's chord progression. Yep. Like you can't you can't copyright a chord progression. And so right. do something else with it. Don't don't just play it exactly how they played it. But yeah. like if there's a song you love that has a really cool chord progression, just just use it. Like there's a reason that there are like such like there are these really iconic four chord loops, like, mm -hmm. you know, the the axis progression, the one five six four or the doo-wop changes or the Plagal Cascade or something like that. Yeah, the, the Stand By Me changes, yeah. Just rip the Coltrane changes. That's that's great changes. They're very easy to improvise over, famously. Uh, <laughs> Wait, aren't the Coltrane changes like the ones that like change key like every two seconds yes. or something? Yeah. <laughs> like the really hard yeah. ones. Yeah. Yes, that, that is the one that's in three simultaneous keys, a major third apart. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like too much jazz for me. <laughs> it's it's a lot of jazz. I'm sure Charles <laughs> Cornell could handle it pretty fine, but uh, not me. I think that's something to keep in mind, too, is when we look at songwriting, I think there's too much of a focus on this idea of originality and coming up with chord changes yeah. that haven't been used before, which you're probably not going to do that. And if you do that, right. it might not sound very good because there's often reasons why it hasn't been used before. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it might. It might, yeah. Right. A big thing for me for a lot of songwriting is intentionality. Mm -hmm. And like, I think there's a lot to be said for sticking with defaults unless you have a reason not to. Yeah. Mm. Caleb is going to have to bleep a little bit of this, but like one of my favorite pieces of songwriting advice that I ever got uh, was from one of my teachers back in college uh, who called it uh, the one f***ed up thing rule, mm -hmm. where like... Rock and pop, especially like th these are sorts of the genres he worked in. And so these are the ones who was like talking about mostly they have a lot of rules for like what you want to do for a song. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Mm -hmm. And you have certain like tonalities that you use and certain keys that you tend to use because they fit on guitar and certain like, you know, all, all of these certain like melodic ideas that pop up a lot. And all of these are, you know, you study this and you learn all of these things and then if you do all of them in a song and you follow all of the rules, you wind up with a song that sounds incredibly generic and boring. Right. Because everyone has heard all of these things. Mm -hmm. But if you do that, except you add one little, you choose like one thing, one thing that like is going to be this song's identity and doesn't follow, and you break the rules in this one specific way, the song still feels familiar and it fits with the musical idiom of the style you're writing in. Mm -hmm. But it also sounds different from every other song in that idiom. You don't hear it and go like, okay, this is every rock song. Yeah. Right. Like you hear it and go like, oh, that's cool. Like you add novelty to it. And then the cool element stands out a little better because it's not competing against a yeah. bunch of stuff. It kind of reminds me of like a person that's like wearing a nicely tailored suit and then like the inner lining is some weird pattern or something. Yeah. But you know, they're not wearing like a purple suit with a feather boa or something on top of it and platform shoes. 
Yeah, where it's like you get to a point where it's just like, oh, that person's trying to be weird, but then right. as opposed to just like, oh, that's just a personality. Yeah. If your personality is a giant, like, feathered top hat, go nuts. Like, yeah. I'm not going to stop you. That's just playing into the analogy. What's interesting about that is often kind of that is how songwriting trends will evolve is someone will have yeah. their one different thing and then that will sound really good and then mm -hmm. people yeah. will incorporate that into the arsenal like one a great example of something that sort of was a very interesting thing was in don't stop believing the dramatic yeah. key change finale that's something that was kind of novel to that late 70s early 80s yeah. what year exactly was it i don't even remember i think that was early 80s i think so as well yeah yeah i know journey kind of straddle 81 yeah it's such an impactful thing that it kind of very quickly gets incorporated yeah. into becoming the norm like Corey was talking about earlier with you know dubstep and edm broadly and the lead-ups being yeah. kind of like incorporated into a lot of top 40 pop now where that was an ingredient that in the early 2010s was very novel you know and you start yeah. to see these kind of acts have success by incorporating a lot of like dubstep drops into their chorus and stuff like that and mm -hmm. you know you even see taylor swift to do it and this might sound like I'm disrespecting Taylor Swift. I don't think this is the case at all. Um, but in general, something becomes codified when Taylor Swift does it, you know? <laughs> like, she's not like a trend yeah. setter, like a trend, like, yeah, codifier. Right. A trend understander. Yes, yes. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I just remember listening to, is it Reputation? Is that the album? Yeah. 2017 one? Yes, I think that's Reputation, yeah. That's the one where she really started implementing like some of those EDM and almost like hip hop ideas, which yeah. definitely like weren't her invention. But then you can you can see how it mixes with her style and sounds yeah. unique. You can see like that being a flashpoint for that in a lot of like top 40 pop. And now it's everywhere. Well, and especially even a little earlier, like Rad, like we are never, ever getting back together. She adds the kind of yeah. I mean, the other thing. The other person in that equation that also when they do it, it becomes pop music is is Max Martin, who just, yeah. y you know, invents every trend in pop music. Yeah. <laughs> is that a uh, producer or just an artist I haven't heard of? Uh, yeah, yes. huge producer. His list mm -hmm. of artists he's worked with includes like Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga. Basically, anyone who has been a pop star in the yeah. last three decades has... Mm -hmm worked with Max Martin. He's so, solid chance to, yeah. He's gotcha. Basically the hit maker of the last 20 years. Yeah. Okay. I think of like, because I'm in the metal world, I think of like Joey Sturgis. Every metal band has worked with Joey Sturgis. So he's like that for the yeah. mega famous yeah. pop bands. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. Getting back to sort of the, the main question, there is a, an approach that I wanted to kind of talk about with this also, mm -hmm. which is you can kind of call this the Lennon-McCartney approach where one of the things that the Beatles frequently did to great success is they just took two different song ideas and just smashed them together. Yeah. Where they oh, would have okay. a song where, you know, one of them would have an idea for a chorus and not a verse, and the other would have an idea for a verse and not a chorus. Or, you know, they would have two different sort of chord progressions and stuff like this. It's something they especially did toward the later parts of their career with the psychedelic mm -hmm. experimentation. But this, it kind of... Like it, it kind of them doing that was some of the foundations of what would become prog rock. Things like, you know, the ultimate example is the medley at the end of Abbey Road, where yeah. hmm. they have this, you know, 15 minute song that's just a bunch of different one minute songs with no particular, you know, tonal relationship to each other smashed together and kind of tied together well in the arrangement, in the timbre, in the ways the vocal melodies run into each other. Or another example is just like A Day in the Life, which has that middle section yeah. that is just a, a different song in the middle of this song. And that, that, that approach, the Beatles were not the only people to do that. Lots of Beach Boys contemporaneously did a lot. No, they, they were the only band who ever did that. Yes, that's but. true. Uh, they were the only <laughs> band ever, right? Yeah, as far as I know. I yeah. I can't think of another. I've taken music history <laughs> classes and they really only mentioned the Beatles. <laughs> just reminds me of the Parks and Rec bit where Andy's like, yeah, that's right. We have two singers. Name one other band that's done that. The Beatles. 
<laughs> That's a technique that it requires finessing. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it works, yeah. sometimes it doesn't. You need to you need to figure it out and try to make it work. But often you can just take two things. A lot of people, especially untrained people, when they're writing, tend to gravitate toward the same key centers because, you know, yeah. A... It's often often in guitar, you know, there's just certain chords that are easier to play. Yeah. I mean, most instruments, yeah, will yeah. just have some keys that are easier yeah. to play than others. And then also there's uh, just personal taste. People will just, you know, people just like different key centers a little bit mm-hmm, and yeah. will gravitate toward them. So sometimes you can just take yeah. two different things you've written and try playing them together and be like, oh, oh, wow, that actually works. Yeah. And it's especially, I think, easy in sort of the riff-based stuff that you're talking about because... In a lot of it, it's not even about a chord progression. It's just sort of a riff into another riff into another riff. Yeah. Which, you know, can be guided by chord progressions. But, like, you know, a a really easy way to do that then is, like, if you come up with a riff and you don't know what to do with it, just, like, record a quick scratch demo and save it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And next time you come up with a riff that you don't know what to do with, go listen to that demo and see if maybe it fits. And eventually, you know, you'll get enough of them that two pieces will just be like, oh, that works with that. And boom, now you have a verse and a chorus. Right. And a lot of those styles, like, depending on where you are in it, like, if you're going for more of that, like, robot rock, like, driving one riff throughout thing versus, like, you know, I think of it as, like, the Kansas style, because this is sort of what they did yeah. in Carry On, Wayward Son, mm-hmm. was, like, every, like, thing that could possibly be called a section transition, they were just like, all right, new riff. And, like, there's this, I think there's, like, six or seven, like, core riffs in that song a lot of 70s prog rock like yeah. like just thrives on these yeah these sort of acrobatic flips through different riffs you know this was one of the things like this is probably the most complicated song i've ever written was i actually had thomas at one point for a video record one of the riffs for this i don't know if you remember that i do remember that that was kind of a brain bender i don't know if i've told this story on the podcast before but basically what happened was i was in a performance class that was meant for people who were significantly less far into their degree than I was. And like I mentioned this to the teacher and she was was just like, yeah, cool. Then just like maybe just challenge yourself and do like a bunch of songs in like complex time signatures. And so I was like, cool. And one of them had to be an original. So I went home and just like wrote this riff uh, that was in 1916, which (laughs) probably the simplest riff in the song. Uh, That might not be true. The one in 1516 might have been easier. Mm -hmm. But anyway, like just went through and went through like six different complex time signatures, but sort of it was exactly what Noah was talking about, where it's like, you know, it almost doesn't have nameable sections. It's not like this is the verse, this is the chorus, this is the whatever. It's just like you do a riff and then the question is, okay, I have these like five or six riffs in my toolkit. Which one do I want to throw in again next? Mm -hmm. And or do I want a new one? Do I want to write something? And, you know, especially early on, just sort of do I want to write a third riff or go back to my first riff or what? And so like going through... In that sense, is for that, for me, a lot of that was just, you know, playing through the riff and then playing into, like, starting to just jam on out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so that one, like, I was thinking about rhythm a lot, and so I would start by just, like, tapping it and then tapping out a rhythm that felt good to me. And then from there, I would start to put notes on that. And that might be a useful thing as well, especially if you're doing, like, odd meter stuff. I don't know if you are. Not right now. But, I mean, I've, I've heard you play. I know you can, but... I can, but I tend to play everything in common time. Yeah. Again, jumping in here with the examples. If you want an example of something that is just sort of different cascading melodic ideas, a lot of prime era yes stuff. If you listen to like close to the edge, that song is also in general, if you like, you know, like progressive metal, like post-hardcore, if you like all of this stuff, you should listen to close to the edge and the yes album and stuff like this, because these are the (laughs) progenitors of that stuff. But close to the edge, especially is just 17 minutes of, you know, Steve Howe backflipping through ridiculous riffs and melodic ideas and Rick Wakeman just going absolutely nuts. Like it's a really incredible piece of music made by this kind of songwriting approach of just 
smashing one melodic idea into another one and kind of cascading it. And then often what you'll have in a lot of these prog rock songs, another great example for that is Supper's Ready by Genesis. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time what you'll have is you'll have kind of an opening section that then kind of cascades into all of these middle sections. And then for like a big chorus or for a triumphant conclusion, you just bring back the opening section and the listeners are like, oh, Mm. hey, I remember that one. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. And then you can bring it back. Often they'll bring it back with, you know, like a a slightly different arrangement. You know, sometimes they'll bring it back in half time for a dramatic conclusion yeah. or sometimes they'll bring it back with, you know, doubled or tripled guitars or a string bed beneath. But that's that's a kind of it's a technique that just it feels yeah. good because generally the opening bit of a song, you're going to familiarize yourself with that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, this is sort of the classic like jazz approach. You have like the head, and yeah. then you have solos, and then you return to the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me like um, the Deer Hunter does that across multiple songs too, where they'll bring back like a motif yeah. from another song on the album, and you're like, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing is is yeah talking about Coheed and Cambria, but like yeah, in general, like that's very yeah they, very... they do that a lot too. But yeah. traditional in prog rock in yeah. prog and the mm. things that are more expansive than single songs but like to sort of circle back to a thing i was talking about earlier like uh with rhythm one thing that I've, i have found a lot of success with is just sort of simplifying and sort of not trying to like take a riff and be like okay what's the next riff but like mm-hmm. take a riff and be like what is some element of the next riff right like sort of you can tap out a rhythm and be like okay what's another rhythm that sounds good after this mm-hmm. okay what notes am i going to put on that or like you know, you do the thing and like play the riff and like, okay, what note might I want to start with? Okay, what do I do from there? Or something like that. And just trying to not make the entire decision at once and just sort of letting yourself discover once you have a foothold because it's it's so much easier to fill out a skeleton than it is to make bones, you know? Yes, I like that. That makes sense though. It makes a lot of sense. Like even if the, the metaphor is kind of weird, yeah, the, the, the metaphor is unhinged, but like... I like the metaphor. Unhinged is the only way that I operate. Uh, when I was doing my song a few years ago... Hinges are overrated. Yeah. It was it was like super stressful because we had the, the record like studio time booked. And yeah. so I'm just trying to like make something out of nothing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, luckily like at dinner the night before we were supposed to go into the studio, I came up with like a better chorus idea and I came in the studio yeah. like, hey, sorry, I only have the chorus idea. And like I scrambled to write some verse lyrics, but I don't know the chords or anything. And they're like, yeah, you're about 50% more prepared than most bands that come in. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of bands come yeah. in and just like, so what do we do? <laughs> I will say, yeah, session musicians, they are used to that. They are used to just <laughs> complete disorganization. That is like half of the job of a session musician is just mm-hmm. getting into a room and figuring out what the other person wants. Right. <laughs> like, because even even if you are prepared, a lot of that is like, you may not necessarily have the language. Like this was a joke that ran around like the vocal department a lot when I was in college was like, you know, you'd work with producers and they'd be like, that sounded great. That take was awesome. But could you make it sound a little more purple? And like you... As someone who knows vocal technique, have to figure out what the hell that means, <laughs> <laughs> like how to actually apply that to your voice, mm-hmm. and you have to do it fast because, like, you know, they they don't want to waste time. They're paying for studio time, and so a lot of being a good session musician is hearing people say nonsense mm-hmm. and then figuring out what that nonsense was actually asking you to do. Were you actually asked to make it sound more purple? I wasn't. I never really worked as like a session singer. Okay. But like I knew people who got not maybe not that exact one, like, but that sort of thing. Teachers would cite that as an example. And like students who were doing session work would like who got like equally, equally ridiculous requests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I had one teacher, this was in one of my ensemble classes. Uh, he was a guitarist. He was not a vocalist. And like, Seemingly the only critique he was able to offer vocalists was like, could you give it more core to the sound? <laughs> and that meant literally anything. <laughs> it just meant to do it better. <laughs> like, There's something about it I don't like. I can't communicate what. Make it pop. The singing was not good. I would like the singing to be good. <laughs> It's just like, I mean, this just reminds me of working as a web designer. And like, there's the classic line, yeah. which I received a million times. Can you make it pop? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sure. I uh, no, increase the saturation, add some lens flares. We got to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, no, that, that sort of thing is, is really common. Uh, and like, I think that's kind of another answer to the question is collaboration. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Noah was mentioning Lennon McCartney and in the context of like taking two different ideas and fusing them together. But also a lot of what made Lennon McCartney work was that there was Lennon and McCartney. Yeah. And so if Lennon had an idea, he had someone to talk to about it. Yep. And, you know, it, it someone to run it by and someone who might have another idea or even just like showing someone your idea and explaining it can can open up that next avenue and have you be like, oh, but I should do this. Like that's even just having a sounding board, even if they don't know what they're talking about, can be really helpful. And another form of collaboration that's very common in a lot of songwriting is jamming, which not everyone yeah. writes by jamming. There's plenty of people mm -hmm. that don't, but there's also a lot of people who will sit down, yeah. you'll kind of have this chord progression, and then you'll just play around with it until you find licks that feel good, or someone might try, yeah. you know, expanding out into a different progression in the jam. Or when I was in a band, a lot of how we would write songs is we would start off jamming on existing songs, you know? Yeah. And then like one of our oh. favorite jams was Ted Nugent's Stranglehold um, because it's just a great little riff to jam on. Like it's very, it's kind of endlessly repetitive and you can just sort of mess around with it and you jam on the, this base of chords. And then, you know, in this jam, you find yourself writing yeah. a little lick that you like and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to take this lick out of that jam and then I'm going to write around that lick. Yeah, and not not to be Noah, but to, to offer an example here, because I'm currently working on a video about Smoke on the Water and Deep Purple have talked about how that's so integral to their songwriting process that like in the, the lockdown for COVID, they wanted to make music, but they were just incapable of writing new songs. And so they yeah. did a cover album just so that like oh. they could make something because they just couldn't figure out how to write songs without sitting down in a room together with their instruments and just letting loose. Yeah, so they just need to be there. I don't mean that as a criticism. Like that's mm -hmm. that was just the process they developed and it worked really well for them. Yeah. If you want an example of people who just will take ideas from other songs and turn them into their own. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe even Smoke on the Water is actually a progression taken from a jazz song, but A Child in Time, which is, again, really fantastic piece, yeah. uh, especially if you mm -hmm. love prog, you should check that out. Its keyboard intro is just lifted from a like psychedelic pop song called Bombay Calling. They played the intro yeah. on an electric organ and mm -hmm. they uh, changed the timing of it and boom, it's a new song. And then, you know, they did a lot from there. It's not like they played exactly yeah. that, but that that's the right. basis of the song. Yeah. It's cliche, the whole like good artist borrow, great artist steal thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. But like, there is a lot of truth to just like, you have influences. Yeah. Right. You, just, you know, just if people, if you love an artist so much that you want to incorporate them in their work, into your work, like figure out what they're doing and just do that. Yeah. Like, totally normal in terms of how music is made like there are copyright things you have to be careful of right like as long as you're careful to not do it in ways that encroach on copyright for like legal reasons mm -hmm. from like you know artistic uh, an artistic standpoint and like an ethical standpoint it's so normal it's so thoroughly normal in so many musical traditions and basically every musical tradition also if you're not looking to release the music and you just want to play music for yourself by all means, yeah. like, steal all you want. Yeah. Yeah, no, by all means, write a song with a smoke on the water riff. Like, no one will stop you as long as it stays on your laptop. But And that can just be a songwriting exercise for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can take ideas from that that aren't the riff. Yeah. And, like, th this was sort of, you know, a thing that I know happened in, like, some early hip-hop where, like, people would write things to sample beats and then have to, like, and, and make a new beat to go underneath it. That way, you know, because they have the ideas and they're, they're playing around, but then they have to work around the copyright. And, yeah. you know, you mm -hmm. can come up with really cool stuff in that space as well. But, like, giving yourself the freedom to just have influences and not mm -hmm. apologize for that, I think is super useful. There was a contest that Sumerian Records did a few years ago where they put out, I think they signed yeah. an instrumental band. They put out one of their instrumental tracks and they were like, 
you can, you know, submit vocals to this and basically like the winner gets to become the front man of this band. So Andy <laughs> Sizik did an amazing cover. He didn't win. I heard rumors that he like did win, but then turned the deal down. So like they said someone else won. But then, so he took his vocals that were over that track and had Nick Nocturnal make an entirely different track that perfectly fits the vocals, even though it sounds very different. So that's kind of interesting. Like, you could easily just take a track from another band, write your own vocals, or write your own licks, and then construct another backing track from the ground up for what you've written. Yep. This is an- another piece of songwriting advice that I got actually from the same uh, college teacher was he was saying like, almost always the songs where like, you know, a lot of songs will start from instrumental and then write vocals on top. Mm-hmm. But like the ones where you start from vocals and then write instrumentals will often wind up being not necessarily your your best, but like kind of your most interesting because you mm-hmm. have such a clear fleshed out like narrative and picture of what it is supposed to sound like. Right. Whereas, you know, if you start from a, a like a jammed instrumental track, like this is one of the things with Smoke on the Water, like... Sorry, I've just been thinking about Smoke on the Water a lot recently. Uh, but like, this is one of the things. It's like, it's interesting that the lyrics tell the story of the Montreux Casino fire that like yeah. happened while they were recording the album. Like, that's that's cool. But also, I don't listen to the lyrics when I listen to Smoke on the Water. Yeah. Like, that's not that's not what I'm there for. That's not what anyone I think is there for. Like, and it's sort of, it feels sort of tacked on top of what the song is Mm -hmm. because they had written the instrumental part first and then they came up with that idea you know and that's not a criticism like that's fine it 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 is they are fundamentally a jam band that has Mm -hmm. a vocalist singing on top and that's cool but like you know that sort of thing when you start with a clear picture in your mind of what the song is narratively and what the song's sort of emotional arc is through the lyrics and through the vocals that can provide a lot of guidance for what you want the rest of it to be in a Mm. way that you don't necessarily get otherwise, which again, is not to say that writing like instrumentals first is worse. Like a lot of great songs have been written instrumentals first, but it's just, it changes the way that you approach songwriting in a way that leads to very different results Mm -hmm. kind of inherently. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you can do whatever you want, but I would agree like, with the song that I made, and I have very limited experience here, but I was trying to start from riffs and chord progressions. And what I flew yeah. to New York with wasn't that great. And then what I got at dinner in my head was a chorus idea that was like entirely lyrical. I didn't know what yeah. sort of chords would go under it. And I think that's part of what made it turn out good is I came in with that narrative and that emotional arc and the chorus in mind. And then we were able to just basically pick the chord progression to go underneath it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think often like you can do the two and kind of mix and match, right? Like a a lot of songwriting also happens from, you know, either the same member or sometimes, you know, this this band member will have uh, this these lyrics that they've written independent of any melodic idea. And then this person will be like, well, hey, you know, I have this chord progression I've been messing around with that feels like it would fit what these lyrics are getting at. And then you smash Mm -hmm. the two together and bada bing, bada boom, you have a song. Or even like, I think like Sweet Child of Mine, if I remember correctly, was was just like the band messing around. They came up with a fun riff that they liked. And then Axl Rose just already had this poem. And he was like, I'm going to sing this poem over this riff. And, you know, neither one was really written to the other, but they were both sort of, Mm -hmm. they both sort of came together. Fundamentally, and I know I keep saying the best piece of songwriting advice, but like, you know, another very useful piece of songwriting advice, and I think this is true of like basically any sort of creative work, is just to like... Are you going to say do it a lot? (laughs) Don't look for direction. Do do it a lot, yeah. But also like don't look for, like, don't over-specify direction while Mm. you're coming up with ideas. Mm -hmm. Like start... It doesn't have to be like, okay, this is this riff. What do I do next? It's just sort of you jam on the riff for right. a while and you see what happens and you see if you, if you want to take it somewhere else. The whole like in brainstorming, there are no bad ideas thing where like, you know, the worst thing you can do while trying to come up with a riff is decide that a riff doesn't work before you've played it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like start to think is like, no, I don't want to try that. It's just like, yeah, give it a shot. See what it sounds like. If it sounds bad, don't use it. A lot of good ideas get thrown out before you try them. Another thing kind of on that, too, is like 
a lot of ideas get tried out a lot of ways before you realize that they're good ideas. It's always fun to me, you know, a lot of these bands will release kind of like archival recordings and stuff like that. And you can hear these different versions, like someone who I know, at least in the 60s, like Dylan's songwriting process was incredibly, incredibly iterative. You can listen to early versions of like, like a Rolling Stone and there's early versions in, you know, with it as kind of a three, four waltz. There's versions in different keys with Mm. different instrumentation. Or Mm. if you watch the Beatles- Just get back. Get back, yeah. Yeah, I I was going to mention that scene. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a scene where Paul McCartney kind of like comes up with the idea. Well, yeah, okay. There's a specific scene that I want to mention, but yeah, there's Mm. a lot of other stuff too. Throughout that whole documentary, you can just see all kinds of, you know, messing around with this idea for a song and they have this rhythm and they even try sort of different lyrical ideas and some of them work and some of them don't and they take what works and they leave what doesn't and it's that documentary is a great sort of window into the songwriting process and shows like how truly iterative it can be and often should be yeah often is yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. where i think like this the scene i wanted to to highlight though is like there's this moment where paul like is starting to actually find the thing. And he starts playing a thing that like we as people in like the 2010s, 2020s recognize as get back. Yeah. And we're like, oh, that's the song. And I think it's it's like John and George who are sitting with him at the time. And if you look at them, like their eyes don't light, light up. They're not like, oh my God. They're not sitting there like I have witnessed genius. Paul has come up with a perfect idea. They're sitting there being like, okay, cool. This is an option. Yeah. And they sort of play around with it and it becomes the correct option. But, you know, you don't necessarily, you know, it's not like you do a thing and it's like, okay, that's it. And, you know, right. we all write scripts for videos and like a lot of that process too is just sort of like sitting back and thinking about a thing, throwing some stuff on a page, seeing what happens. I don't know your processes, but like, yeah, it's pretty much like that. <laughs> yeah, it is. A lot of it is just sort of putting things on a page and then thinking about them and maybe coming back a little bit later and revising yeah. a line or two because you have a better idea. Mm-hmm. I think something that I'd I'd say, too, about both creating videos and writing songs is often there will be an idea that I have that kind of sits and percolates for months, sometimes even years, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's not discarded. It's just always kind of there in the idea well. And then, you know, something will happen or inspiration will spark and I'll be like, oh, okay, this is the angle that I approach this on. This is how I do this. And it's the same with songwriting. Again, often when you look at kind of archival works from great songwriters, you'll see sort of like rough versions of songs years before they're recorded. And Mm -hmm. I think you can, if you're too quick to kind of move on or too quick to discard your ideas, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Like keep them around, break out the lick again every now and then and be like, oh, hey, you know, I didn't like this when I was playing it on this guitar at this tempo, but I've sped Mm -hmm. it up and added a bit more overdrive and I'm playing it on a guitar with a fuller sound and suddenly this really rips. Yeah, Yeah. I've been noticing that. There's like a riff I've been developing on this little acoustic guitar that I have at the office, which like, yeah, it's not an acoustic really and I don't have an amp for it. (laughs) So I'll come up with ideas there and then I'll go home and like the other night I threw on just like a simple delay template on my um, yeah. my Helix. And I was like, okay, this riff sounds way better. Yeah. <laughs> With a bit of delay yeah. and a bit of reverb on it. Timbre can do so much for you. Yeah. Timbre mm-hmm. is, and that's, and to go back to the question of like section transitions specifically, like that can be another way, again, like non-harmonically to really differentiate. It's, you know, classic is like throwing on distortion, yeah, right? right? Like you're playing a riff. And then you get to the chorus and you hit the distortion and suddenly it's the same riff, but it sounds so much heavier. Right. But, you know, you can do that even if you're changing riffs or whatever, like you can adding delay to like the chorus, but not or to the verse, but not the chorus. So the chorus Mm -hmm. sounds a little like more present and like crisp, whereas the verse is a little more ambient or something like and reverb obviously can do similar things. And like all of these all of these buttons that you can play around with and like that to an extent sort of makes it more complicated, but it also again, going back to sort of the simplifying and like making one decision first thing. Right. Is like, it gives you so many more angles to think about like, okay, like I have this delay based riff in the verse and I'm just, what I'm going to do for the chorus is I'm going to turn off the delay. 
And what would yeah. sound good once I do that? And like that, that can sort of open up a door and a pathway to walk down. There's people like me who yeah. like they think in gear. So the idea of yeah. like, oh, let's play with a bunch of different. Wait, you uh, do? <laughs> I, I'm shocked. I <laughs> The idea of like playing with a bunch of different effects presets is like, that's not intimidating yeah. at all. Where yeah, I yeah. get intimidated is like, I've come up with a chord progression I like. Now I don't know how to make the next one that stitches really well out of this. Yeah. So the idea that I could just come up with a nice chord progression or a riff and then transition just by changing my preset and playing the same chord progression, that's like, okay, I have a way forward. I know I could do a track like that. I'm going to learn a bunch and then I can try something yeah. a bit more advanced next time. I mean, this is going to be a bit of a stretch of an analogy, uh, but like uh, when I started doing YouTube, I, I imagine you guys have, maybe not Noah, I know you did some of this stuff beforehand, but like for me, I had done nothing in the video making space. Mm. And so like there were like 20, 30 different skills that I had to learn all at once. Yeah. And I was working with a couple friends to start who eventually dropped out of the project, but like they were handling specific aspects of it. Like one of them was the videographer, one of them was doing audio editing, one of them was animating. Mm -hmm. And so that way... I could learn all of the skills except for those three first. And then like I could figure out, you know, the next skill once someone dropped out. And then I was only having to figure out that one thing right. because I had already picked up the other things and sort of going in and building a skill set one at a time instead of like, and it's not necessarily even like a skill set thing in this case. It's just like, you know, figuring out because, you know, you, you might try like playing the same riff with a different set of presets and being like, I like that sound, but I just this playing the same riff isn't working. Yeah. Right. But now you have a sound you like, and mm -hmm. you can play around with that. And so that that opens up a lot more options as well. And I think something to keep in mind is you can get very, very technical about this stuff. And there are lots yeah. of great musicians who do. You know, Steely Dan are famously yeah. meticulous with figuring out all of their the perfect timbres and stuff like that. But then also like David Gilmour, who might have the greatest guitar tone ever his approach to guitar tone is he fiddles around with knobs and buttons until something sounds good um i just, I just want to say Jimi hendrix might disagree yes, with you uh, on that i but. mean is david gilmore is that boston uh pink floyd oh pink floyd okay yeah i didn't know the but, name yeah. so but i've heard a lot of people rave about uh boston's guitar tone boston does have very good guitar tone with hendrix i, I remember a story of him like because back in the back in the like this was really early on in like guitar pedal technology. Yeah. We had just figured out transistors that were small enough to do that. They kinda sucked and were wildly inconsistent. And so he bought like I think it was like six of the same like distortion pedal just to find It is the Arbiter Fuzz Face. Uh the Arbiter yeah, the Fuzz mm. Face, yeah. Anytime he went to a store, he would buy every Arbiter Fuzz Face they had and try them all out <laughs> yeah. to make sure. Yeah. Something I wanted to mention also, actually, on the kind of on the main topic as as we're kind of approaching time yeah. here is another thing that you can do that can like really add a lot of richness and texture to choruses or verses while keeping the same chord progression is change the chord voicings. Yes. Oh, so, yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. That's something that can have a huge, huge impact without really yeah. doing that much. You're still playing mm -hmm. The same chords you're just voicing them a little bit different or even just like kind of like tweaking and adding a diminished chord in yeah. there things like that you can do very little things yeah this actually happens in smoke on the water halfway through the verse john lord switches each of the notes in his right hand up one note mm -hmm. and so instead of a voicing that has a b flat on top it switches to one with a d on top interesting uh so yeah that if you listen to the second half you can sort of hear that that rise in energy that comes from that shift Another thing sort of to come back to your initial question about chord progressions, because we sort of spent most of this uh, ranting about how chord progressions aren't that big a deal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like a lot of songs do have different chord progressions yes. for different sections. Right. One thing that like in addition to like changing to the relative major minor or whatever, another option if you want to stay in the same key is to just start on a different chord. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a verse progression, a verse loop that starts on the one chord and then goes through, maybe start the chorus on the four chord and end on the one. Okay. And that sort of gives it this sort of response vibe that sort of also provides a sense of like closure that you want from the end of a chorus. And so like the four is a really classic one. Yeah, very common to start on the four if you want to do something different. Uh, six is also not uncommon. Mm -hmm. you sometimes see five. 
Uh, but like these sorts of things, just trying to find like a different chord in the key that feels like the opposite of the one in some way, and then starting there and working back to the one. This is assuming that you have a loop that has a clearly defined tonic, This is, right. which is not always the case. This is a thing that I yell at a lot of music theorists about, but like it can be hard if you're sort of starting the same way and then moving off in a different direction to really feel different. Mm -hmm. uh, not impossible, obviously, plenty of songs do it, but it's also, it, it can be a really effective sort of just to, to sort of change the polarity or change the direction of the, the progression from moving away to moving towards something or whatever, or just start somewhere else and that feels like, oh, this is a new thing, and then doing whatever you want. Right. I, I would say a, a way that you can kind of like feasibly do that as well is like if you want to find a different chord to go to, play the verse yeah. and then try playing the verse with just different chords, just kind of strumming it at the end of your progression yeah. and just see mm -hmm. how that sounds. If you don't like that sound, try another chord there. And then when you find a chord you like, try that and, you know, start on that chord and figure out what a progression that you like from that chord is. Like often you yeah. you can kind of like brute force it almost, right? Like, yeah, you can do it to sort of really like, yeah, methodically in terms of, or you can do like random generation too. Yeah. It's not necessarily going to give you the best final result, mm -hmm. but like if you just go to random.org and have it take, you know, enter 12 note names, have it randomize them, take the first four, treat those as chord roots uh, and play your verse loop and then play those first four as chord roots and see how you feel about it. And do you like it? Is it good? It's probably not great, but maybe there are parts of it that are interesting mm -hmm. and it just sort of jogs you in a different direction. And another thing in terms of like creative processes that I've always found is that it's easier to have a better idea than a good idea. Like right. yeah. once I have a chord progression that sucks, I can tell you what sucks about it mm -hmm. and I can tell you what I would fix. But like, if you're just like, what is a good chord progression? There yep. are a lot of them. So <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> the way we did the drums was very similar where I think yeah. Mike just laid down like an incredibly boring, just kick snare, yeah. kick snare. But then we had it and I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah. why don't we like add a fill here? Try something different, right? Yeah. In this section. Yeah. What if we play around with a hi-hat or something, you know, mm -hmm. like, you just get so many more ideas once you're hearing a thing that's not great, but could work. Right. And, you know, yeah. So that's another approach. I think something I need to do at my home setup is like figure out some way of like, I need to figure out some sort of setup where it's really easy and quick to lay down like a quick drum beat because I don't have that. Like I'll get a riff and then I'll just stop. <laughs> do you have like a, a DAW of any like, yeah, I've got uh logic and yeah. studio one and I have an, uh, SPDSX. So I could probably just like hook that up in a more convenient spot and drum on that. You know, I, I don't know. I know GarageBand just comes with a couple drum loops and like, they're mm -hmm. not, you know, the best drum loops or anything, but you know, you can do them and then, you know, it gives you a sense of what it would sound like with drums. Yeah. And having some access to even like really crappy MIDI drums mm -hmm. is, it changes the game fundamentally. <laughs> so there's a lot of tools online that you can use as well. Even, even like Corey was talking about like random generators. There's also websites where you can plug in chord yeah. progressions and they'll spit out complementary chord progressions for you. And there's absolutely. Yeah nothing wrong with using those sorts of tools. These are the sorts of tools that songwriters have always used. They're just yeah. kind of streamlined for a digital age now. But, you know, often, I don't know for sure, but I imagine, you know, in the days of Tin Pan Alley, someone would probably walk over to the next room where another songwriter was working and be like, hey, I can't figure out how to transition this chord progression. You got any thoughts? Yeah. Like that sort of thing, using resources around you is, is so essential. Yeah. One mm -hmm. tool that I specifically wanted to mention on chord progressions is... Um, are you familiar with the website Hook Theory? I feel like I've heard of it, but I don't think I've ever been to it. Right. So they, they have they have a free tool called Trends. Okay. Uh, which is just the, a giant database of chord progressions. Mm -hmm. And you can search it by like entering a set of chords. So you can go like, okay, like if I if I start on the one chord 
it'll have this thing that will tell you like how likely it is or how many of those songs in their data set anyway go to each of the other possible chords. And so you're like, okay, I'll start on one and then I'll go to four. And then it's like, okay, for songs that go one to four, what are the like chords that happen next? And oh. so like with sort of the one, I'll say one messed up thing uh, I was talking about earlier, you know, if you follow that exactly every time, you're going to wind up with really generic chord progressions. Yeah. But it's sort of, you might try it and see like, oh, people go to the three here? What's that? like? And and it, it has songs that you can like listen to that will show you what that sounds like. And so that's, I, I find a really useful tool this is when cool. I'm trying to do any sort of like um, harmonic, like corpus analysis. If I'm looking for a bunch of examples of, a, of songs that do a chord progression, it's so useful for that's that. That's really uh -huh. cool. Oh, and you can change the, the uh, key as well. You can change the key. It'll also let you do it as just relative. So it'll just have like the Roman numerals. Mm -hmm. So you can do that um, as well. But like there was a, an anecdote that I heard based on an interview with Sting. And the interviewer was at his house and was really surprised to see on the table that he had out like a thesaurus and a rhyming dictionary. Mm -hmm. And he was like, but you're so good at lyrics. Why would you, why would you need these tools? And it's like, <laughs> I use these tools which is why I'm so good at lyrics. <laughs> and if you want to make good stuff, like use tools. Again, to, to compare it to the editing process, it took me a long time to start using presets in Adobe yeah. After Effects because I was like, yeah. no, like I'm, I'm developing my own style and stuff like that. And then I started using presets and I was like, holy shit. It's a lot easier and I can do way cooler yeah. stuff that looks a lot like the stuff that I really wanted yep. to look like, which it feels obvious in hindsight. But I think with mm -hmm. creativity, we, we've mystified creativity so much that we forget that it's just like anything else. You know, like if you're trying to, you know, gain muscle mass, you use tools to help you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what does Thomas know yeah. about gaining muscle mass, though? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I was born like this. <laughs> if you're trying to learn a new language, you use something like Duolingo. I mean, this sort of stuff is what so much of Thomas's channel is about, right? Like yeah. using mm -hmm. tools that exist out there to help you in other fields. And I think people are yeah. so shy about doing that in creativity because there's this sort yep. of mythical idea of how creativity works. And there's this idea that there's these kind of geniuses that are handed ideas down on yeah. high and, you know, create it. But there's so many <laughs> tools for these things. And a lot yeah. of the people that you love are already using either these exact tools yeah. or tools similar. Yep. There is like a cautionary aspect to it, I think, because Again, if, if you're relying too heavily on tools, you wind up making something that sounds like a tool made it. Mm -hmm. Like this is the critique of a lot of like, sorry, I recently watched Patrick Willems's video about AI um, films. Oh yeah, I watched that this afternoon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, it's very good. First of all, I disagree with him on some points, but like overall, I agree with yeah. a lot of his argument. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the critique of that is that if you just tell an AI to make a Wes Anderson parody of Star Wars, you wind up with something that looks really soulless because none of the creative decisions were made by anything with a soul. Right. And... Whether, uh, I don't want to get into the metaphysics of whether or not souls exist. That is so not the point. Uh, <laughs> the point is, you can easily write a song and write lyrics that sound like you were sitting there with a thesaurus and a rhyming dictionary. Mm -hmm. That's so easy to do. Actually, FD Signifier had a great video yeah, the, the other day. the cannabis video. Yeah, talking about lyrical miracle yeah. rap, which is, which is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that is sort of just... I'm a lyrical, spiritual, miracle individual. You know, you, I, I have all of these, like, I can tie together all these words that rhyme in really interesting ways. Yep. But, like, it's, it's not actually necessarily saying anything. Yeah. And so, like, that that is sort of important to keep in mind is, like, having tools is not a substitute for having a vision. Mm -hmm. But if you have a vision, then tools help. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to bring in one more tool here that it's not uh, James exactly help your... <laughs> Huh. with your <laughs> process, but it's one of my favorite creative tools. And also just, I think that you would just love these, Thomas, which is part of why I'm bringing them up, but they're great for songwriting. They were designed for songwriting. Have you ever heard of Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies? No, I don't even know who Brian Eno is. So Brian Eno oh. is maybe the most important 
person in music history. Um, okay. <laughs> not quite there, but literally in the conversation. Certainly, arguably, one of the most important producers. Yes. Okay. Like. Yeah. Um, so Brian Eno is one of the inventors of ambient music. Brian Eno produced uh, a lot of the best work of David Bowie, The Talking Heads, Coldplay, real sort of like yeah. genius in music who's actually kind of like he describes himself as a non-musician. Yeah, I don't buy that. But he often tries to introduce concepts like new and different concepts to music. And one of the things that he has, uh, he, along with someone else whose name I'm forgetting right now, developed this deck of essentially idea prompts called oblique strategies, where they are just kind of like blank cards with one sentence on it. And when you, whenever the way that it works is whenever you're feeling sort of like creatively in a jam or, mm -hmm. you know, like artistically stuck, what you do is you just pull one of these cards and there's various websites yeah. online where you can generate some. So I've got one pulled up now and I'll read you some random ones. Like this is one that just says, look at the order in which you do things. Mm. Picked another card that says you are an engineer. Another one says, what would your closest friend do? Another one says, make an exhausted list of everything you might do and do the last thing on the list. They're just kind of well-named. They're yeah. oblique strategies for sort of creativity. They were designed, they were used a lot in uh, Eno's production work, but I've used them to help me make videos. My dream is to make a video on oblique strategies using oblique strategies, which is very yeah. fun. Um, but they're mm -hmm. a great way of just uh, forcing you to kind of like think outside the box or sometimes, I mean, like this one I pulled just says overtly resist change, mm -hmm. you know? So anytime that you're stuck, you just kind of pull one and there's no objective way to do what they want you to do. You just sort of yeah. interpret what they're trying to say into your art. And it's a really good way of just, especially if you don't have somebody in the room to bounce ideas off of, it's a really great yeah. way of breaking through those creative blocks. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah. Another like less esoteric version of that, which not to say that that's not a good one. Yeah. A thing that I very often do in my creative work, which is less songwriting, more script writing, but like, you know, is still, you know, writing is like, if I get stuck, just go do something else for a bit. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, go for a walk, walk at, watch yeah. a TV show, play, read a book, go rock climbing or whatever. Like, you know, that sort of thing opens up because a lot of creative work just happens in the background. Yeah. Yep. Like you just let ideas percolate and eventually something will come. And so like, if you have a cool thing and you're stuck, Go for a walk. Yeah. Go do something else. Touch Come grass. back to it. Uh, sleep on it, maybe. Like, come back to it the next day. See what happens. Mm -hmm. There's a book on my desk right now called A Mind for Numbers. And the author talks about there's like yeah. a focus mode and a diffuse mode of thinking. And like your focus mode is where you're sitting down really trying to think about a problem. But you're like a, a pinball in a tight cluster of bumpers. It's a whole extra yeah. table that you're not letting the ball out into. Yeah, no, I find like if, if I'm forcing myself to write, then the stuff I'm writing is stuff I'm going to have to change later. Mm -hmm. So yeah. maybe just don't force myself to write and go do something else and come back when I'm more up to writing. But yeah, I think that's yeah. probably, it seems like maybe a good place to end it. I don't know how you're yeah, feeling. But... I think that's a great place to end it. Yeah, I mean, I have like a, a at least five new strategies for yeah. a next <laughs> song, you know? So I'll yeah. probably just start from, I've got a cool riff, let's try changing the timbre a bit with uh distortion yeah or we'll go yeah. from an arpeggio pick to an actual chord strum yeah if you end up you know writing any songs of them and posting them somewhere where can people find your music uh, on youtube there's a channel called thomas frank music and there's already i think four songs there and then on spotify i'm just thomas frank nice awesome. not the german one from the 1980s <laughs> well, also secretly the German one from yeah. the 1980s. But <laughs> I guess I could be that one. Uh, his picture is very 80s looking, so it'll probably be pretty easy to find me yeah. if you put that name in Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But yeah. Well, any last thoughts, Thomas? Y'all basically like diverged into productivity territory. So we're all good, you know? <laughs> Take a break, practice, yeah. build upon uh, a bad starting point. You're good to go. 
it's funny like when yeah. i was writing my when i was trying to write my song i like vlogged a bit of my thoughts and i'm like you know what I've been telling people for years to use this 1% rule with YouTube where you just make a bad video and then the next week you make it 1% better. And for some reason, yeah. I'm just having so much trouble taking my own medicine when it comes to music. I'm like, no, yeah. the first song has to be Coheed and Cambria level. It has to be perfect, but of course <laughs> it can't be. Like, It's the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to do. Like, so Yeah, that's, that's my parting thought. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for the invite. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. All right, go check out Thomas's stuff. It's really great. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.